0: Welcome to the History of England, episode 369, Jesse Mass in lug. And welcome also to episode 8.1 because this episode is also the first in a new series, Series 8, The English Revolution. Now, of course, there are many other things I should be calling it, The British Revolution or Wars of Three Kingdoms and so on and so forth. And do not fear, I shall very much not forget how interconnected the three kingdoms are. But in the end, this is a History of England podcast, and so, well, that's that, really. However, it is very relevant that we start this absolutely fascinated, zinging period of history, 1638 to 1660, not in England, but in Scotland. Because if Charles' personal rule created the reasons for the English Revolution, it was the mess that Charles made in Scotland that provided the trigger and started a chain of events he was unable to control or at least unwilling to pay the price required to assert control over it it is worth me saying at the time of writing this little bit i have not yet got to 1660 in fact we're only up to 1644 and the battle of marston moor and we've already had 27 episodes i am so sorry it is a period i absolutely adore and i have rather let it run away with me but Hopefully you'll enjoy that detail as much as I do. I have some advice if you do start getting bogged down in the detail. So you might want to go back now to the episode before this, the At A Gallop episode on the personal rule. That gives a pretty good backdrop as to why all this is kicking off. Then there are two more At A Gallops already, which will help you keep the big picture if you're struggling with the detail. And I'll do more as we go through. So, Eight episodes, 369 to 376, deal with the attempt to come to a political arrangement between 1638 and 1641 until the execution of Stratford pretty much nixes that. Seven episodes to 383 then deal with a period where both sides talk peace, but really prepare for war and they fight a war of words. The war of shooting starts at Edgehill In episode 384, in 1642 and so away, and along the way, of course, there is a whole lot more going on which Wibbe takes along. So, there is the political bait, and the emergence of new ideas, particularly from the scandalously unfamous Henry Parker, ideas that will be picked up by John Locke later in the century and made famous. The English Revolution is famously as much about religion as it is about the Constitution, and with the death of censorship, there is a flourishing of different sects. As the war progresses, the opportunities for ordinary people to take part through protestation, petitions, news sheets and a military service grows and grows and grows until royalists are absolutely horrified of the oiks they are fighting on the battlefield. There is less growth, it has to be said, in freedoms for women, but there is some in terms of political involvement and petitioning, but more in religion, where the likes of Catherine Chidley assert women's equality in matters of conscience. Hopefully something for everyone to enjoy then, and look forward to. So let's get on with Series 8, start the English revolutions where it belongs, in Scotland. I mentioned last time that for all the inflammable materials lying around England to burst into flames, a spark was required. And that spark would come from the lights in the north. And we'll get to that in a wee while. But before that, I thought it might be nice to ask, so what were all these revolutionaries in waiting doing during the 1630s? Just to repeat the point I made at the end of the last episode, raising Cain in England in 1640 was nowhere near as easy as it would have been in 1440. In times medieval, you had all these powerful regional warlords wandering around in clanky armour with eager, loyal tenants ready to stretch about the slightest twitch of the aristocratic eyebrow. I exaggerate for effect, obviously. But in 1640, they were all reading the Bible and closing the commons, building prodigy houses and eyeing up the latest word in lacy roughs, and their tenants were busy extending their houses with a nice brick chimney. The importance, then, of the role of Parliament as a focus for discontent is incalculable. Fire in the north or no fire in the north, something had to make a parliament happen. So, as I say, I thought I might just look around and see what some of these revolutionaries did with their time. Might just keep them in your mind at the front of things. And also, because it is rather difficult to get any sight at all of revolutionaries preparing for the big day. I don't know much, actually, about the run-up to the French Revolution, but this is categorically not like the Russian Revolution, with revolutionary theories and theorists doing the round, Lenin hanging out in Geneva with Dali and all of that. In the words of Mark Knopfler, most people appeared to go back to their valleys and their farms. You might want to go and look up the post on the website called British Revolutionary Biographies if you get lost in all the names that follow, by the way. OK, front of house, when Parliament is recalled, will be John Pym, of course, and the circle of which he is part, the Earls of Warwick and Lord Say and Seal and other colleagues like John Hampden. The super-summary by his biographer is that Pym demonstrated in the 1630s his ability to make friends and influence people and also a genius for losing money in colonial ventures despite his undoubted financial skills. He spent much of his time in London, and through projects such as the Providence Island venture, he stayed in close contact with the likes of Warwick, Say and Seal, Lord Brooke. This then is one of the themes of the personal rule. A large group of families, together and independently, will busy themselves with the Westwood enterprise. Some will actually emigrate, so two in particular are worth mentioning. One is Harry Vane the Younger, son of the courtier Henry Vane the Senior, who will become the King's Secretary of State in 1640. The younger Vane started with a diplomatic career and one in naval administration. These are skills he'll return to, but in 1635 he emigrated to Massachusetts, where he became governor for a while. He left after the Anne Hutchinson controversy. Anne was a religious radical with whom Harry had sympathy, being a believer in religious toleration. The colony did not, however, and Anne was expelled. The experience marked Vane in his religious radicalism and prepared him to be part of the independence. He returned home in 1637. The other worth mentioning is Hugh Peters, a radical minister from Foy in Cornwall, who spent much time in the Netherlands and then travelled to New England with John Winthrop, who was married to his stepdaughter. Peters was an active minister in New England, Minister of Salem for a while, and would return to England in 1641 as one of a Massachusetts delegation. Peters will stay and will be an ever-present radical and preacher throughout the whole civil wars, a continual advocate for the independents and Congregationalists. You will be a very divisive figure, a massively charismatic man and talker, soaked in the misogynistic traditions of the time, travelling enthusiastically with the army in constant sympathy with ordinary soldiers. His passion and the strength of the impact on his daily life of his religion gave him an enthusiasm that bordered on the naive and drove his passion for and his views of political and social action. He is a character, is what I'm saying, and a character not to everyone's taste. If involvement in colonial projects is one theme, staying at home, then, is another. Although John Hamden was to some degree involved in the Providence Island project, for the most part, he just went back to the business of being a country squire after all the excitement of the ship money case. Hamden's lawyer, Oliver St. John, went back to lawyering, but the patron who had presumably encouraged St. John to help Hamden was one Francis Russell the Earl of Bedford. He has quite an interesting time in the 1630s, but not in the way of a traditional apprenticeship for revolution. On the one hand, he's very much involved in the kind of Fenland drainage project that Cromwell opposed during the 20s and 30s on behalf of the local people. There is actually still a channel called the Bedford Drain named after him. A proud boast. Anyone who wants to name their drains after me, just let me know. Or honestly, just a gutter, anything. The other concerned what was called a little lane lately called Russell Street, west of the City of London. So population in London was growing like topsy. Facilities just weren't keeping up. So with a licence from the King to beautify the growing parts of London and employing the architect Inigo Jones, Bedford created an exclusive new development with church and tenements all based around a large open piazza. It was called Covent Garden. All very exciting, but not particularly revolutionary. And then in the going back to the valleys and farms category, we might also include men like Denzel Hollis, who after the excitement in 1629 of holding the speaker in the chair, was robbed of any revolutionary outlet. He went back to Dorset, picked up a few minor government posts, and was described by his biographer over the decade as a sullen country gentleman. Also in the same category, we should include two of the more martial leaders of the parliamentary side in the coming war, Oliver Cromwell and Thomas Fairfax. Cromwell married Elizabeth Boucher in 1620, a marriage that seems to have been loving throughout the extraordinary changes in their lives over the next 30 years. In the 1620s and 30s, their fortunes fluctuated quite a lot. It was never very grand, and at one stage... Cromwell seems to have slipped out of the minor gentry level down to being a farmer as they moved to St. Ives, although an inheritance improved his fortunes a bit after that. Throughout his life, the marriage was close. In 1646, they would move to London, although obviously Oliver was then away from home fighting a lot. A very small number of letters between them survive. Elizabeth comes across as more outwardly affectionate. "'Truly my life is but half a life in your absence.' She writes once, Oliver's a bit more gruff and it seems very much more in the military man's style when he addresses her from campaign. Thou art dearer to me than any creature. Let that suffice. Elizabeth gets a fair amount of grief from the political nation for being too too sort of homey and ordinary during the protectorate where she's supposed to be all grand and queenly. But the relationship between her and her husband seems to have stayed strong throughout. They had nine children together, six of whom survived early childhood. And family seems to be a central theme in Oliver's life. He had a particularly strong relationship with his second daughter, Elizabeth, who they called Betty. She was born in 1629. At the age of 16, she fell in love with a Parliament soldier, John Claypole, and was married. Oliver's grief at her death from cancer in 1658 inspired Andrew Marvel to write a poem about him. Anyway, that's enough of the lovey-dovey stuff. Four things really to know about Cromwell in this period. Firstly, not only was his marriage close and a source of emotional support, Elizabeth also brought connections to add to those he already had, which would be very relevant in the coming ha. Although he was very much a poor relation, he was now connected to the St. John's, the Wallers, and a ream of influential gentry families too numerous to name here, including his cousin John Hamden. Elizabeth was the daughter of a London merchant whose father had estates in Essex and was therefore a neighbour of the Earl of Warwick. So what's the point about this is that when Cromwell reaches Parliament he will know a lot of people, be connected to a lot of people and his name will be known. Another concerns religion. There is a letter dated 1638 which records a famous conversion after what he described as a long period of melancholy. These dramatic conversions are very reminiscent of many similar events in the lives of other of the godly and the Puritans. Oh, I lived in and loved darkness and hated the light. I was a chief, the chief of sinners. Oh, the richness of his mercy. His religious fervour, so much part of the make-up of the godly, was reflected in his patronage of lectureships for Calvinist preachers. And this is another sniff of opposition to royal and laudian rule to add to his defence of the common people of the Fens. Lord was not keen on these private preachers. He tried to close down as many as he could because they were very rarely of Arminian disposition and in actual fact they were a way round his removal or disciplining of Calvinist-minded Church of England ministers. In trying to save a lectureship, Cromwell wrote to his local colleagues in terms that indicates his opposition to their removal by Lord. In these times wherein we see they are suppressed with too much haste and violence by the enemies of God. The enemies of God, identified here then, appear to be bishops. And finally, there is a famous remark Cromwell is supposed to have made when the grand remonstrance squeaked through a parliamentary vote in the 1640s when Cromwell whispered in the ear of an MP that he'd considered emigrating to New England. So maybe he considered such a thing during the darker days at St Ives. Thomas Fairfax, Cromwell's military boss through the Civil Wars, also busied himself in his home county. Thomas, or Black Tom as he was known, was a God's owner, one of those lucky enough to have been born in God's own county of Yorkshire. The Fairfaxes were, I suppose, minor barons or upper gentry. Thomas's grandfather bought a barony in Scotland, Lord of Cameron, and then Thomas was the son of Fernandino, who was a second baron and himself a notable MP with a significant role in the wars until his death in 1644. They were, however, a well-known family, especially in the east riding of Yorkshire, and proud of their military background. They came under the patronage of the noble family of de Vere and he married Anne Vere in an arranged marriage, but one that turned out to be very happy. Anne Vere will come up later in our story. She was a person of strong opinions and in the idiom of the time, Thomas was to get quite a bit of misogynistic grief for the crime of not being the trouser wearer in the partnership. Anne seems to have rather enjoyed the civil wars, often campaigning with her husband and on one occasion they escaped after a defeat by riding on the same horse, Anne riding pillion. Whereas the Fairfaxes were probably Calvinist and mildly Presbyterian, Anne herself was very much more radical, coming from a Dutch radical Protestant tradition. However, Fairfax was not entirely stay-at-home during the personal rule. He campaigned under Baron de Vere in the Thirty Years' War on the Continent, Not necessarily the longest campaign, or certainly not the most glorious, but he commanded a troop of dragoons and he saw action, and this was to stand him in good stead when things started to kick off in Yorkshire and people began to choose sides and commanders. That, then, is a third theme. An off-to-the-wars segment. I have said that England had lost regional military capability that it had in days medieval, and I stand by that statement. If I was on a hill, I would now be digging a little trench with determination that I would die there if necessary. But that's not to say there was no military expertise whatsoever. Maybe as many as 50,000 Englishmen actually fought in the Thirty Years' War, the vast majority as mercenaries, and most of them fighting for the Dutch. So, just like Fairfax, there were smatterings of knowledge here and there. One of the principal commanders on the parliamentarian side would be one Robert Deverer, the Earl of Essex, who will be a major political figure too. Poor Bob, as I shall never again call him, had spent some years fighting in the Netherlands in the 1620s. He appears to have been mildly successful, but also very popular with his men, because he fought at their side with no airs and graces. But the things he learned would not make him popular with the more gung-ho of the war party. The battle was rarely decisive, that the cost in human life was dear. He was therefore a cautious, reactive commander. He fought to force a negotiation not to win. By the way, poor Bob, because our Earl of Essex had awful luck with marriage. You might remember his first marriage to Francis Howard, which ended in divorce on the grounds of his impotence, a very public case indeed, which set him up as the butt of a nation's jokes and giggles. We covered it in the episodes on the Overbury affair, if you remember. His second marriage was just as bad. Essex married and spent much of the 1630s trying to be a fun-loving regional magnate. But then his wife had an affair, got pregnant... Everyone debated whose the baby was and with another general chuckle at Essex's expense. Essex did the decent thing, stood by the little scrap, but the poor mite then died. So, I say for the last time, poor Bob. He gave up on marriage after that. In addition to Essex, of course, we've already heard briefly of Ralph Hopton the Royalist and William Waller the Parliamentarian both of whom had brief service and accordingly became friends and commanders, and they will have a very famous correspondence of friendship during the civil wars, despite being on opposite side, in what Waller described as this war without an enemy. On the royalist side, the Earl of Lindsay, Charles's first commander before he resigned in a huff, had experienced two of the Thirty Years' War. And then, of course, there is Prince Rupert. One of the more famous figures in the English Civil Wars. You must have heard of him. Looks like Timothy Dalton. Jokes. Rupert was the son of the exiled Count and Countess Palatine of the Rhine, the Winter King and Queen and all that. Charles, his nephew. And a younger brother of the heir to the Palatine, Charles Louis. Rupert has a terrific modern reputation, really, and some of it well-deserved. Dashing, good-looking, brave, energetic cavalry commander and a stunning civil war afterlife as a naval commander. He is the epitome of the public image of the Cavalier. He has also been described as a thuggish toff. Now look, we'll come to an argument sometime about whether the Thirty Years' War was really way more brutal than the English Civil Wars or not, because there is an argument to say that in Ireland in 1642 was actually the arrival of commanders with continental experience that actually moderated the brutality of the Irish 1641 revolt. However, it is Rupert who will be in command at three of the most brutal atrocities of the Civil War at Birmingham, Leicester and Bolton. Jonathan Heliot is who described him in his book The Blazing World as a thuggish toff. You will decide either way. But whatever, Rupert brought a wealth of experience of European warfare to England when he and his little bro Morris came there in August 1642. So basically, there was experience of the latest tactics and formations developed in European warfare around at the time from multiple sources. The Brits would not be complete losers in the military tactics front. What is true of England is also true of Ireland, where many young scions of Catholic nobility fought on the Catholic side. One of them, Rue O'Neill, will be a particularly important player. Doubly true of Scotland, but we'll come to that in a mo. So, super summary of the first half then. In general, in the 1630s, the political nation of the late 1620s returned home to their valleys and their farms, got involved in colonial ventures, or in a few cases, went to the wars. Of course, most of the courtiers involved in the 1620s politics continued in government, as was their wont, what they didn't do, any of them, was plot, scheme, and develop a new vision of the world. No one seriously built models of a glorious new republic or even a glorious new form of monarchy. No one would come to the conflict with a clear plan and template. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Hawkeye, that brings us kicking and screaming to Scotland. We have been here before, of course, so I'll try not to repeat myself. But hey, repetition is the mother of education. So if I do, maybe that's not so bad. I just want to make sure you've got the big things in your mind. So here are the highlights. A population of about a million, a society more than usually dominated by the magnate class who were almost like regional satraps. They held heritable jurisdictions in local courts that elsewhere would be a public office appointed like the king, like things like JPs or whatever. They and the Lairds also held most of the rights to appoint ministers to their local churches and control over a lot of church income as well. There is a deep division between the Gallic highlands and the lowlands in language, landholding, rights of lordship. There is some sign that the edges were blurring, for example, since towns like Creef had become entrepot between Highland and Lowland, where cattle were brought down from the hills. But most Lowlanders saw the Highlanders as barbarous and living in a dangerously wild landscape. Gallic Highlanders saw Lowlanders as foreigners who had pushed them off the most fertile lands. Population in Scotland was much more evenly spread than it is today between Highland and Lowland, since the clearance of the Highlands by Scottish landholders lies in the future. In addition, the focus of Highland chiefs was rather different. They were less concerned with the Scottish state, which so would prefer to just leave them alone. They were rather more concerned about the politics of the Highlands than the politics of Scotland. They also have close links with Gaelic Ireland, which is, after all, just a hop, skip and a jump away across the sea. The monarchy is even more important as a focus of identity than it is in England, would you believe? there is little of the great reverence for other institutions like Parliament or the form of law that you have in England. Scots were proud of their Stuart monarchy, which for 300 years has preserved their community rights, identity and way of life against the guerrilla of a southern neighbour. And it's this that, that provides a glue that brings everyone together. Just as importantly, their king was now largely absent. Scots, feared becoming a province of England now, and this is not a fear that Charles's attitude would help them with. Nature abhors a vacuum, said Aristotle when he took a break from the bottle, and a stronger source of national identity was therefore needed. And for many, religion was that thing. The Reformation in Scotland in the mid-16th century, unlike in England, was bottom-up, and Calvinism is deeply, deeply embedded in much of lowland society. The Kirk is the centre of community life supported by the Kirk Sessions which bring together the local nobility, the Lairds and all ranks of society in a strong sense of solidarity to regulate behaviour in the community. Scots are proud of their Kirk. It is far more purely Calvinist than England's messy compromise affair and the Scots considered their Kirk the most perfect expression of God's will. To the point where the idea was strong that the Scots were the nation of God, the true Israel. Maybe they could lead other nations such as England into the light. The Presbyterians have a strong voice and a deep dislike of bishops. They saw them as agents of the state, a hangover from Catholic days and with no authority for them to be found anywhere in the Bible. However, Religion is less of a unifier than it was before the Reformation, and than was the monarchy, because take-up in the highlands has been rather more patchy, although it is very strong in the Campbell lands of the South West Highlands. But for many Gauls, Calvinism smacks rather of the lowlands, and even worse than of the Campbell clan. And in the North East and Aberdeen, Episcopalianism remains very popular and indeed Catholicism survives there too. That's where we are a horribly short introduction, so sorry to any Scots out there, but I don't really want to repeat myself too much. So, in terms of the 1630s then, emigration from Scotland was even higher as a proportion than England, mainly to Ulster, but again a lot to the walls, about 25,000 probably. The religious motivation was strong, fighting for the Protestant cause. But the tradition of seeking a better life by the route of being a mercenary soldier was also a strong tradition already, especially in the Highlands. There was a long history of the mercenary gallow glass of Highland Scots fighting and making a life in Ireland. Protestant Scots fought in the Dutch provinces in Poland, Spain and Russia. They fought for Sweden, Denmark, the Palatinate and Bohemia. They fought for the Germans. They were particularly highly valued as soldiers, particularly in Sweden. The Scot, Alexander Leslie in particular, will play an important part in our story, and he had a long career in Swedish armies, rising to the level of field marshal. He earned a debt of gratitude from the Swedes, and this is very important, because when the balloon goes up, the Scots will have a talented and experienced military commander. They will have a good supply of arms from favours pulled in by Leslie when he finishes employment for Sweden and a large pool of experienced soldiers on whom to draw. It is one of the factors that will give them a massive advantage for several years, one of the things that will allow Scotland to punch above its weight. I have definitely told you that on his accession, James I left his son not only his kingdoms, but also a little buried bomb that would take great care to manage and not set off. No bishop, no king. James had said, and the stern Calvinism of his subjects in Scotland had spooked him somewhat. So, James had fought hard to protect his bishops and their role, and had largely succeeded, and also in maintaining some aspects of the more ceremonial form of religion, such as bowing at the name of Jesus, having altar rails. These were then embedded in the five Articles of Perth he issued. And if you wanted to get chucked out of a Scottish dinner party in 1630, just say, hey, don't you love those Perth article things? Your feet would not touch the ground. You'd find yourself in the rain. James and his bishops had managed things with great care, though, after the five articles. They'd not confronted the Calvinists, particularly in the heartlands of radical Calvinism, which is to be found in the south, southwest places like Galloway and the ancient Kingdom of Fife. Charles kept a Scottish Privy Council in Whitehall and in Edinburgh and managed affairs in Scotland himself, keeping Scottish affairs well away from the English Privy Council. This meant that he was advised in Whitehall by people who had relatively little understanding of the latest mood north of the border. Of particular importance in this is one James Hamilton. Hamilton at least did have extensive lands in Scotland, but he lived now mainly in England and was close to the king, very close. He'd been with Charles on their mad Spanish trip and in 1631 had taken a Scottish army to help the Swedes in the Thirty Years' War too, so he did have some military experience. Hamilton's relationship with, with Charles was as close as close could be. They also shared the passion for art collecting, and it was to Hamilton, therefore, that Charles turned to advice. Charles's style with the council in Scotland might be described as, let us say, Direct. It was really not consultative. He gave orders the council should carry them out. This is not the consultation and council process that Scottish magnates expected of their relationship with their king. And truth be told, it is by and large a de- demotivating management style, I'm sure you'll agree. Attendance, therefore, at the councils in Scotland became rather poor. The magnates had better things to do than shovel manure for their boss. And after all... Charles had not started well. In 1625, his revocation, reclaiming crown land granted out, gave everybody very wobbly feelings that their property was not safe in their king's hands. They'd not even bothered to come and see the land of his birth since becoming king. The news from the south of Charles and Lord's church reforms really put the wind up the Scottish Kirk. The changes were anathema to them, as much as the most puritanical Puritan in England. And since 1625... Charles had been considering how he might bring the churches across all three kingdoms into uniformity and it wouldn't be based on the Scottish model. And to that concerns that with their king based in London that Scotland would become a province of England. These were sensitive times in Scotland. Handle with care. That brings us then to the 1630s and personal rule time and in 1633, good news, Charles was going north to visit his homeland. Yay, hang out that bunting. Once they looked each other in the eyes, once Charles was back in the land of his birth, they would surely love each other and get home like a house on fire. And when he arrived in Edinburgh, there was indeed a great procession. There was the mother of all bunting hangouts. There was much celebration, even drinking. Everyone essentially bunted for joy. Their king had come home. Sadly, Charles Didn't behave much like a lover. If he was in a relationship, it might qualify as coercive behaviour anyway. Charles took the sensitive body of Scottish concerns, which were in need of an easing, calming balm, and smeared salt-and-pepper chilli powder rub all over them. First of all, he held a service in Holyrood Palace, and guess who was with him conducting the service? Yep, William Lord. And everything was set up just as Lord would like it. altar rails, ceremony, vestments all of that. And then the king reverently kneeled. I mean, red rag bull, let it roll. And then, just to nail down the coffin cover, they used the English Book of Common Prayer. The Scots did not like the English Book of Common Prayer. They did not like set liturgies generally, actually. And it was all perilous close to papism in their view, and it was English too. So, as starts go, not off to a flyer. Next, the reason for the visit, Parliament. Now, Scottish Parliament was different to the English one. It was unicameral, just one chamber, and all the estates therefore sat together. Nobility, Church, Burgesses of the Towns. Parliaments were much shorter. This one would be just ten days long, although that's unusually short. Although the estates might meet beforehand separately, the hard work was done by the Lords of the Articles, a committee that prepared all the bills for approval by Parliament. They were easily influenced by the king, they included his bishops, and Charles himself attended their meetings. The resulting 168 public bills in 1633 were submitted for approval on the penultimate day of the Parliament. None of the estates were permitted to meet separately to discuss them. The bills ratified all the acts of his father, including the hated five Articles of Perth, and no discussion of them was permitted. The way voting went in Parliament was that everyone went up in order of seniority, so the magnates went first, and generally the Lairds followed the way their regional magnate voted. Lairds, incidentally, unlike English gentry, are nobility, holding title directly from the king. Just a little wrinkle that you should know. What it meant all of this was that the king sat in the chamber. Everyone was under his eye the bicameral English parliament had the impact of taking the commons out from under the king's eye, since he would usually sit only in the lords. But not here. Here he saw it all. So there Charles sat, watching everything, ostentatiously taking notes. According to a contemporary, he gave vent to a great deal of spleen. And then at one stage, the pinnacle of coercive behaviour... He took a list of names out of his pocket and declared, "'Gentlemen, I'll know who does me service and who will not this day.'" Wow! Despite this, the key and most unpopular votes were still very close and fatally often relied on officers of state and the bishops to get them through. Love, sadly, was not in the air. Just to cap it off, while Charles went on a month's progress, Some of the disaffected peers put together a petition to the king, detailing why many had voted against his measures, criticised the way business has been conducted, and complaints of the religious acts figured very highly, damning the five Articles of Perth, and expressing the fear that Charles would change the kirk in line with England's church. This, needless to say, was a very important document, signed by fully half the peers, so what did Charles do? He refused to receive it, of course, and when he found out that one of them, Lord Balmerino, had copied the document, he was prosecuted and condemned for seditious libel. Charles then created a new bishopric, rubbing the Kirk's nose in the hated church hierarchy thereby, and happily hop, hop, hopped off down to England. Job done. Good golly, Miss Molly, personal rule at its most impersonal. So, just before we come up to date in 1636, let's summarise what we have in place. We have the following items. Number one, a king out of touch with his people, uh, with all the signs that he did not care, and out of favour with his natural allies, the magnates. Two, a people worried about the high-handed way in which governance has been carried out. Three, a people... Terrified that their native form of religion will be replaced by an alien one and that papistry will arrive in town on its tail. And four, a people beginning to believe they were becoming just a province of England and subject to the guerrilla's muscle. So, Charles had better tread carefully and with great political skill. Which you can be sure he proceeded to do. Not. It is a prayer book with which we need to start. Charles did not agree with the Scottish Kirk that their church was the most perfect in Europe. He thought that was the English one, with the added, I mean, restored ceremony of Lord's innovations. So, he intended to send the Book of Common Prayer and the canons of the church, that is, the English church, north of the wall and order them to use it, as is. To give them credit, which they are rarely due, The Scottish bishops talked him out of it, and instead they were commissioned to create a Scottish prayer book. By 1637, all was ready. New canons were issued in January, the new prayer book by July. Neither of them were designed to make the Kirk happy. The canons included the five Articles of Perth and excluded the Kirk's General Assembly. The prayer book was actually worse than the original, since it had removed some verbiage against the real presence. And worse, in the preamble it said, the churches under the protection of one sovereign prince. So, the finest of churches, the kirk was to be rolled into that popish English mess then. More grist to the mill of the concept in Scotland that if there was to be one church throughout the three kingdoms, it should not be the Church of England, but au contraire mon brave and sacred blue, it should be a proper Presbyterian model. So, everyone ignored the new Book of Common Prayer. Charles could have made like his father at this point, and let the book be used by those inclined that way, like the Episcopalians in the northeast. But, gently gently, in Charles's playbook, did not catch the monkey, so he ordered his council in Scotland, led by Troquer, to order everyone to use it, and to use it on the 23rd of July. Now, Troquer doesn't get a great press from historians, as God has said, and there is some evidence he encouraged all the ensuing mayhem because he rather liked seeing the bishops get it in the neck from a political point of view. But in what follows, Charles rarely made any attempt to sell the benefits of all this to his people, He didn't even sell the sausage, never mind the sizzle. He made precious little effort to persuade. And secondly, he never worked with his council on the spot. He just sent them orders, go faster, go harder, despite their pleas to go easy. But also, make no mistake, what follows was no accident. It was coordinated by the opponents of the king's plans. They were forewarned. Scottish ministers from Ulster warned them of Wentworth's activities. English and Scottish Presbyterians and Puritans sympathised with and supported each other. In February 1637, for example, one Eliza Borthwick, a Scot based in London, came back to Scotland to report back on all the feelings down south. So, on July 23rd at the Kirk of St Giles in Edinburgh, things kicked off in a royal fashion. It is a real hoot and I wish I could spend more time in it. And if you become a member of the History of England podcast, you can. There is a complete series on the history of Scotland and there's more detailed coverage in there. Anyway, as the Dean read the collects from the Scottish Book of Common Prayer, the congregation in St Giles went mental. Stools were thrown. Possibly mythically, a market trader, Jenny Geddes, threw a stool and cried... Do give you colic, the whammy, false thief. do you say mass in my lug? That was my friend Davy doing Jenny. The translation is, Devil calls you colic in your stomach, false thief. Dare you say the mass in my ear? The crowd outside hammered on the windows and doors. Women led the protests by design. I think because it was felt that would lend more seriousness to the message, that this was genuine, not just a riot but also because the organisers felt retribution against them would be much more restrained. Although there was all manner of chaos and plenty felt threatened, physical violence there was none. This was all carefully contained and planned, not a spontaneous riot. Although the prayer book was temporarily suspended on the 29th of July, from that point on, uncompromising royal orders kept arriving in the morning post of the Scottish Council. They were a bit scared of the boss and rather glossed at their report's home while appealing directly to Hamilton in London to get the King to compromise. There followed six months of petitioning by the Scottish political nation, begging the King to change course. Resistance spread throughout lowland Scotland. Petitions came mainly from Fife and the South West, Galloway and so on, but they were extensive and one had Burgesses representing 36 of the royal boroughs, with 30 peers and 280 Lairds. There were angry riots in Edinburgh, though when things got violent, the nobles and the Lairds tended to withdraw and try and calm it down. Charles remained obdurate, refused to compromise, and still failed to make any effort to present an alternative vision of his way and why it was right, why it was better, other than that their role as subjects was to obey. There is nothing like the proclamation which had followed the 1629 Parliament in England, which had done rather a good job of presenting his case. And indeed, he did that thing we'd seen in the 1620s with the English Parliament. He now made it personal. He made it a test of loyalty to him. On the 19th of February 1638, he issued a proclamation saying that he personally had overseen and approved the prayer book and declared that those who opposed it would be treated as traitors. So the Scottish political nation changed tack and created one of the most remarkable movements of the entire civil wars period, the National Covenant. Covenants are something of a feature of Calvinism, but covenants and bans had been a feature of Scottish society for much longer Scottish lords decided that what was needed here was to mobilise the entire nation about this issue, to bring them together to defend what was most important to their communities and identity, their Kirk and their King. Yes, and King. At no point do the Scots contemplate republicanism. Their problem was that their King was not behaving as he should. Unlike in England, they will never move from the conviction that the King was a critical part of the nation. The Peers, therefore called together a committee, led by two men, a lawyer and a minister, Johnston of Warrenston and Alexander Henderson. They created a document called the National Covenant and announced it on the 28th of February 1638. It was based on the King's Confession of 1581, a statement of faith by James I. The Covenant declared two shared aims of the people, to protect the true faith of the Scottish Kirk and particularly against the Antichrist, a.k.a. the Pope, and to protect the king. It proclaimed loudly that it was simply restoring things as they should be, the way they were, but of course it was nothing of the sort. It was absolutely revolutionary. It took government of the church out of the king's hands. This was the philosophy of the two kingdoms, one of Jesus and the church and one of the king and the state, and the two were not to be mixed. And by implication, in fact, the king and lay government played second fiddle. Neither James nor Charles could ever live with that. The church was in the king's gift according to their belief. When he heard about it, Charles's head exploded. He growled that he had no more power than the doge of Venice unless he brought them to heel. There has been something of a continuous debate about the covenant. Was the committee set up by the nobles genuinely inspired by religious fervour, or was it a ploy in a political game, an attempt by the peers to regain their old ascendancy in national and local government? And there was opposition amongst them. Of the 89 adult male peers at the time, maybe 28 were linked to royal government or held offices in Charles's household, and others such as Catholic courtiers were probably also alienated by the Covenant. In 1638, a list of Scottish nobility drawn up suggested that more than half were for the king. It's probable that the two aims, political and religious, were at this point not in opposition, because there is no doubting the religious fervour present in most Scots involved. But there is a hidden fault line, it's worth noting, over the relative importance of King and Kirk, and this would reappear much later in 1648. The most remarkable thing, though, about the National Covenant was that it was to be signed by absolutely everyone. Noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers and commons. After promising, they... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. would defend the power of the king, they also swore not only to maintain their covenant with God, but their covenant with each other. Also, to the mutual defence and assistance, every one of us another in maintaining the true cause of religion and his majesty's authority. And this is what happened. Up and down the country, through 1638, congregations gathered in their parish church to hold up their hands and swear to abide by the covenant together. Although only men were required to swear, very often women did too. In the borough of Ayr, the covenant was taken by men, women, and all young and old. In Bird Island, it was taken by the whole people, men, women, and children, standing side by side with their hands upheld. The lords and ministers of the covenant had comprehensively outplayed Charles. And part of their reason for that was not just their understanding of the people, but their extraordinarily effective use of communication and propaganda. Petitions gathered, proclamations made at the Mercat Cross in town after town. They mobilised public opinion against blank royal commands, exercising nothing but the royal prerogative. The National Covenant was a masterstroke. Historian Laura Stewart makes the point that it was not just what people swore to But the way it was all done. The social power of the covenant emanated from its association with practices and rituals through which people understood themselves as a religious community. It would take a miracle now to avoid war. From this point on Charles might squiggle, he might squirm, duck, dive, dissemble and deceive but he had no intention of letting this pass. For the lords of the covenant the danger was clear Any agreement they came to now had to be future-proofed against the king that would constantly seek for ways to reverse the covenant and, quite evidently, by using the size, wealth and power of England to do so. So, England must be brought into agreement with the Scottish Kirk. True safety lay in Charles's aim to unite the churches of the three kingdoms, but as a Presbyterian church on the model of the Kirk, not of the Laudian English Church. That would be the consistent aim of the Scots from this point forward, to achieve that security. More than that, there must be a covenanted king. Charles must sign the covenant himself. And this place centre stage the inherent contradiction of the National Covenant. What would happen if the king and true religion were in conflict? What then? We'll find out more about that next week. As resolution is sought. Meanwhile, I hope you can contain yourself until then, and good luck, everyone. Thanks so much for all your feedback and everything, and have a great week.